The Bike Show on Resonance 104.4 FM. My name's Jack Thurston. El Pistolero vanquished the big Texan. Yes, after three scintillating weeks, the Tour de France 2010 is over. The winner is Spaniard Alberto Contador for the second year running. Andy Schleck from Luxembourg picks up second prize, which this year only is sponsored by the SRAM company, manufacturers of mm, high-quality drive chains. In third place is Denis Menchov, Russia's silent assassin, so don't go near any sushi bars when he's in town. Lance Armstrong, who had promised a final showdown with his valedictory tour, wasn't able to make a strong enough challenge and finished in 23rd place. Bit of a disappointing result in his last tour, but still not bad for a man who's 38 years old. Mark Cavendish, Britain's sprinting sensation, won five stages, incredible, and uh, narrowly missed out on the green jersey, which went to Alessandro Patacchi from Italy, riding for the Lamprey team. Himself, no spring chicken at 35 years old. Britain's other big hope, Bradley Wiggins, failed to match his fourth-place finish last year, ending up 24th, one place below uh, Lance. And Team Sky, his new team, performed well in their first tour, but... um, They faded once the road started to go uphill. I'm sure they'll be back next year, though, and maybe with a few new signings. And if there's anyone who will tell us about um, rumours and uh, intrigue in the tour and who Team Sky might be signing next year, it's Lionel Burney of Cycling Weekly. Lionel's dogged reporting of doping scandals has put him in the top rank of real journalists covering cycling rather than those ones who just recycle team press releases and his opinionated comment articles make him friends and enemies in the pro peloton in equal measure. Lionel should be on the line now. Lionel, can you hear me? I certainly can, Jack. Good evening. Hello, welcome to the show. Lionel joining us from his very comfortable bed. I imagine you're under the covers after three weeks covering a tour. You must be knackered, uh, almost as knackered as the riders. Well, I wouldn't go that, quite that far, but yes, it's, uh, it's been a, another long tour. Uh, three weeks never feels quite as long as it does in, uh, in July. How would you pick out some highlights from this tour? I think it's been one of the best tours for years, but you're, you're the expert. You were there. It's been absorbing um, every day. Obviously, the, the, the standout um, thing was the showdown between Contador and Schleck. And really, you couldn't split them. You know, they matched, them, matched each other all the way up the Tour Malay. Schleck tried as uh, hard as he could to, to shake him off with, a, with an, an absolutely fearsome pace. But uh, Contador was, was able... Uh, to just hang in there and uh, tactically Contador always seemed to have the upper hand on Schleck um, 
partly because of the the uh, the incident with the chain that you mentioned on your intro there. Yeah, so tell us about it. I mean, I made light of it, alluding to the blushes that must be uh, on the faces of the people who make uh, the chain set that that, that derailed um, his chances. Really, well, he was he was a f- he was a f- few seconds ahead, and um, he was launching an attack, and his chain fell off. But that's not the whole story, is it? Oh. Uh, well, that's pretty much the long and short of it. Schleck had attacked. Um, it was on the on the, uh, the one of the Pyrenean stages. It was really coming towards the, the time where one or other had to do something in the mountains. Schleck took the initiative, um, and Contador responded. And as Contador got level with him, he pressed on past. And at that particular moment, Schleck's chain un- unrailed, and uh, he he panicked really. Um, I mean. It's, it's easy to say that uh, with a cooler head, he might have been able to just uh, ease off the pressure and 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 keep the chain on. Um, but he did he did panic. He had to stop, put the chain back on with his hands, and then chase on. And of course, then the controversy was that Contador had seemingly attacked the yellow jersey while he was having a mechanical mishap, and and that's one of the unwritten rules of the tour. But I think if you talk to the riders and managers that are actually out on the race. Uh, they were pretty unanimous in saying that uh, the race was on and, and it was it was terrible misfortune for Schleck. But at the end of the day, the Tour de France is a test of man and machine, not just man. Yeah, I mean, it's a bit, little bit like, you know, someone pulling out a sword to take a strike at his opponent and then he drops the sword and the opponent's supposed to say, oh, off you go, pick up the sword, <laughs> pick up the sword and have another go. I mean, it, it's not like a puncture, is it? It's not like falling over on a, on, onto a, a fan who runs out into the, into the road or, or slipping on some oil on the road. I mean, it's, it's user error, isn't it? It's, it's shifting clumsily. I think uh, I think somebody made the point that he was pr- perhaps uh, I mean we don't know specifically what gear he was in at the time or what gear he was trying to shift to but uh, you we all know that if you're if you're in the uh, the small chain ring and also in a small sprocket and you and you try and shift you're putting quite a lot of strain on your uh, on your gearing system by trying to do that um particularly when he was out of the saddle and and he's got the full weight of his body going down through the through the cranks you're asking quite a lot of the of the equipment even the best equipment in the world can fail um and yeah i I have every sympathy with with contador he had to go on really um menchoff and sanchez weren't going to wait you can't really uh wave the white uh the white flag for for five minutes while everybody uh regains their composure i think the only mistake contador made was trying to say that he didn't know um he clearly did know he knew what was happening and, and he had no option but to go on. But to try and say afterwards, oh, well, I didn't know it was happening, I think uh, was, was trying to pull the wool over people's eyes a bit. Well, I reckon that um, the Schleck brothers will be riding or, or rolling <laughs> or palping, whatever you want to call it, Shimano or Campagnolo next year and uh, giving Shram a wide berth. But one man who's always been in the right gear, it seems, um, this Tour de France is Mark Cavendish. Five stage wins, incredible. Absolutely incredible. I mean, considering a lot of people had, had started to write him off uh, in the first half of the year, um, it, it was publicised, but perhaps it took a while to sink in that uh, Cavendish's goals this season were very much weighted towards the end of this year with the, the Tour de France in the middle and then the Vuelta a España, um, which is starting at the end of August, and then the World Championships in, in Melbourne in early October. Uh, and unlike last year, where he he started like uh, 
well, as if he'd been fired out of a cannon, really. Uh, won Milan San Remo in March and then carried on to the Tour de France and then pretty much disappeared after the Tour. He did a, a couple of low key races. This year, the season was always supposed to be uh, the other way around. But the difficulty is convincing people that when you're not getting results in the early season, that it's all part of the plan. Um, and he did have a lot of problems on and off the bike as well, which, which compounded um, the, the, the slow build-up to his form. And it's probably fair to say he came into the Tour a little bit short of where he wanted to be. Um, he fell off in Brussels on the first uh, occasion when there was a chance to sprint. Um, and then he, he, he was well beaten and actually sat up in, uh, in Reims uh, a couple of days after that. But then to win five stages, it's, it, it really is incredible. And I think people don't give him the, the credit uh, that he deserves for just how dominant he is. It's, it's very easy to say he's up against a weak crop of sprinters. I don't think that's the case at all. I just think he's, he is a once-in-a-generation rider. Yeah, and he won the races in different ways, I think it's important to say. He, he, traditionally, he's had this fantastic lead-out train. These are the riders who, who in the closing stages, the closing kilometres of the race, make a kind of go in front of him to give him a good slipstream and one by one they peel off as they as they you know expend themselves in service of of, of mark cavendish and in, and particularly i think mark renshaw who's his final lead out man who gets him you know to within 150 200 meters of the finishing line and and the first couple of stages that he won in this tour and all of the stages i suppose that he won in last year's tour if i'm right in thinking were you know at, at, at the wheel of his lead-out man, and he just came in good in the last 150 metres with this amazing turn of speed. But when Mark Renshaw was expelled from the tour for a kind of head-butting and uh, bad riding incident in one of the sprints, Cavendish was kind of not exactly on his own, but he had to be much more of an opportunist and a completely different type of sprinter, much more like a kind of Robbie McEwen sprinter, getting on other people's wheels, you know, re- realising that he wasn't going to have this super fast man to take him to within 100 metres of the line. I think you've summed that up absolutely perfectly, yeah. I mean, um, Cavendish's career has been a series of, of uh, him proving various statements wrong. They said last year he couldn't win a race as long as Milan San Remo, which is 300 kilometres long, and, and he won that. They said he he wouldn't win Tour de France stages in any great number, and he, of course he won four in 2008 and six last year. And then they said he was too reliant on this lead-out train and that would he be able to cope with, uh, with the fact that George Hincapie, who was another one of the important lead-out riders, had left to join another team. And, and you know, he, he's, he managed to do that. Um, and then Renshaw, yeah, he, he was expelled from the race. In my view, um, probably the only result uh, that was left open to the, to the jury on that particular occasion um, was to was to kick him out of the race because as a lead-out man, relegating him to last place on the stage is, is really no punishment at all. And I think you can't allow a trend whereby the lead-out men start uh, impeding and influencing the passage of uh, the riders that are, that are coming up to try and challenge Cavendish. So it was a fant- it was a fantastic route, and we discussed that a little bit last week with Paul Fornell on the show. So I'm not going to go into that into the pave and the mm-hmm. the way they've gone twice over the Tourmalet. Um, but this is a real success for the organisers. They, they'll be happy with the result, do you think? I think so, yeah. I mean, television viewing figures are, are probably what uh, ASO, the organising company, pays most attention to. And uh, the early results are, I gather, the Tourmalet stage had some very big figures which exceeded anything last year. Um, so in that sense, certainly having a very close battle between two 
um, such dynamic mountain climbers. It, it's kind of uh, harking back to what the the, the tour of uh, uh, the fifties, sixties, and seventies was all about, which, which was about man versus man. You, yeah, you think yeah. To sort of uh, the the days of Onkatil and Pulidor, or uh, uh, even maybe um, Eno and Lamond in the eighties, two men going head to head. And I think uh, we certainly got that because you couldn't split them. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I thought that one of the interesting things, in a way, also harking back to the golden era of cycling, was the television coverage on that last climb of the Tourmalet, where the, um, the the mountain was shrouded in clouds. It wasn't actually raining, I don't think, but um, the, the helicopters couldn't get up and to get a good view of what was happening. So we were relying on images from the cameras on the on the back of motorcycles, and that gave us a real flavour of of what it was like on the road and the movement and and the, the excitement on the roadside, rather than these kind of somewhat clinical static views from overhead that give you a lot of information but fail you know, and maybe emotionally somewhat. Certainly. I mean, when I first started watching the tour in the early 80s, the only pictures you really had were from a motorbike from behind the leading rider on the mountain stages. You know, you had, you often, you saw the backside and their back and the, the sort of rocking from side to side. And occasionally you'd get a head-on shot, but you wouldn't have these kind of detached uh, aerial shots from the helicopter, which, as you say, spectacular though they look, they don't really give you a feeling of, of, of what it's like to actually be in the race. And I think those those pictures coming up the Tour Malay, um, mostly of Alberto Contador's behind, um, but you're, you really are a sort of uh, eye level with the riders. You, you get a chance to sort of really get up close and almost feel like you're in there. And with the crowds closing in from both sides, uh, as they did, I mean, the crowds up there are absolutely incredible. Um, it really did. Uh, it was an evocative afternoon's viewing for anyone who, who was lucky enough to be off work and able to watch it. So we've, we've got a couple of minutes left to, to, to wind things up. Um, not going to talk really about the doping stuff. I think there's a lot that's going to come out and a lot that we would talk about now would be speculation. But it's interesting to see that, um, that the mainstream media in the US has latched on to the Floyd Landis allegations about a kind of pretty comprehensive doping ring in American cycling um, and then we also have the, a shadow over the green jersey Alessandro Pataki who, who pipped Cavendish to the green jersey and he's under investigation in Italy. I'm not going to draw you on those Lionel although I know you've probably got interesting things to say although maybe you've not got your lawyer sitting next to you. Um, we have seen the retirement of Lance Armstrong but there's more than that. Is, is this a handover from, in, from one generation to the next because Cadell Evans, Ivan Basso I mean, I suppose we've got Vinokurov who's come back um, blazing, but we are seeing a new generation with, with Contador. I mean, he's, he's already won a couple of times, but um, Schleck and some of the other riders too, Kreutziger, um, maybe even uh, Geraint Thomas. Uh, yeah, I think so. I mean, Contador is uh, he's still, well, I mean, he's won, he's won three tours now, but, uh, you know, he, he's got a lot, a lot left to give. He's still only 27. It'll be 28 in December. Um, Andy Schleck is, is going to be his biggest rival over the, over the coming years, but there were some there were some new names up there. Robert Gesink of uh, of the Netherlands, who finished sixth overall, riding mostly for his teammate uh, Menshoff, uh, who you mentioned, who finished third. Um, he, he's a young lad, 24. Um, Jurgen Vandenbroek of Belgium, 27 years old. Um, so that we'll see a bit more of him in the future, I suspect. And of course. Kreutziger is another, another of the very young ones. Um, and Ryder Heiserdahl. And Yeah, I mean, Ryder's 29. He's been around for a while, but he's, he's uh, come, from, uh, come from mountain biking in the past. And, 
and so he hasn't got so many miles on the clock and 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 often when a rider uh, comes into road cycling and develops quite quite late on in your late twenties as a as a as a Grand Tour rider. Often you can go a lot further. Um, so I I I wouldn't rule him out. He could perhaps go into his early thirties. Um, but you you mentioned Geraint Thomas, and certainly I think uh, we'll we'll see a lot more of him next year. Um, I think perhaps Team Sky are, are regretting the fact they didn't big him up um, quite as much as they as they could have done before the tour. And I don't think they really made as much of uh, his successes. I mean, he was second on the stage that went over the pave, which was an absolutely extraordinary result for um, somebody with with such little experience in in the in the Tour de France. Um, and he wore the white jersey. And I think at the time, Team Sky was still very much pinning everything on Bradley Wiggins, and they thought that that would be perhaps overshadowed by what was to come. And I think they may well reflect that in a race like the Tour de France, you you can't gloss over your successes. You have to make everything you can of them because you just don't know what's around the corner. Well, Lionel, thanks very much for joining us on the show and your coverage of pro cycling to be found on Cycling Weekly um, and Cycle Sport as well, right? That's right, yeah. yeah. Thanks. thanks for All right. Thanks, Lionel. No problem. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Well, it's 120 miles through the night from London Fields in Hackney to the Suffolk coast at Dunwich. Of course, I'm talking about the Dunwich Dynamo. And to my great regret, I wasn't able to be there. Uh, But I will be back next year. It sounded like it was a corker. It's impossible to know exactly how many people did the ride. There's no registration. There's no real organisation. But we do know that a thousand route sheets were dished out at the start. And the cafe on the beach at the end cooked 990 eggs. (laughs) I like that statistic. So according to Barry Mason of Southwark Cyclist, who's probably better placed than anyone to know, he reckons that 1,350 did the ride, which I'm sure is a record. And the weather was good too for the third year running dry night with gentle tailwinds. So there's a lot of great ride reports out there on the net and some photos too, and a few reports from listeners on the Twitter Basher 1978 says, I recommend the beef noodles from the Chinese in Great Dunmo. There seem to be a lot more hardcore roadies this time and it was fast and furious. George Briscoe says, fabulous and slightly boozy. Best sign seen en route, no beans for sale. A sign in a garden about three quarters of the way uh, to Dunwich. And Solentine says, a great tailwind all the way and he didn't get lost and liked the lack of hills, which made the Cotswolds look mountainous. Well, last year's bicycling theatrical sensation was, of course, Pedal Pusher, which next month will be at the Edinburgh Festival with a new cast. But this year, a new play is making its debut, inspired by the landmark Italian neorealist film The Bicycle Thieves. Released in 1948, The Bicycle Thieves is on every film buff's list of 
greatest ever films and tells the story of a poor man searching the streets of Rome for his stolen bicycle, which he needs in order to earn a living. The new play, which shares the name um, and takes some inspiration from the Italian film, will be performed next weekend in an outdoor promenade performance on the streets of West London as part of the In Transit Festival. This morning, in the rain, I went along to meet the cast at a rehearsal outdoors where the play is going to be taking place. I asked writer and director Henriette Baker how the idea first came to her. The story evolved out of a cycle ride that I did, well, around Christmas time. And I was cycling along the canalways, which is a very pleasant place to cycle in London, but um, not many people know about it. And I suddenly had the idea that it would be wonderful to do a show that involved cycling and that the premise of the show could be a chase, a bicycle chase. And... um, that's really where the story came out from, and it was conceived for Hackney, um, where it sort of fitted fitted that area. And um, then I saw the film, <laughs> and and of course loved it. And so we've used it as a starting point, I suppose. Um, and by keeping the title, it's a kind of wink and a tribute to it um, but really it's gone on its own journey now and um, we hope it stands its ground as it is. Because <laughs> the film has inspired other films um, like loosely inspired I suppose Pee Wee's Big Adventure and Beijing Bicycle I guess more closely as a, a, a recreation. Is there a great cinematic bicycle chase oeuvre that you were able to go back to to look at when you were thinking about how to choreograph a bicycle chase on the streets of London in in a dramatic setting? I suppose I have seen bicycle chases happen um, around where I live. I have to say that rehearsing this show, it's been been quite funny because we've had to keep reassuring people that no, this bicycle is not really being stolen. (laughs) It's theatre and you don't have to come and rescue us. I managed to catch on tape a short part of the rehearsal featuring, featuring... Uh, the two lead characters, Cole and Stella. Look, Stella, I told you it wasn't a good idea. No, you didn't, Cole. You didn't say that. You just, you just got and spoiled everything tonight. Well, you shouldn't have asked me to look after him. Oh, shut up, Cole. Just shut up. What? You're just going to walk away now, are you? Yeah. <laughs> you came all the way out here just for that? Yeah, I did. Stella, my bike was nicked, all right? What do you expect me to do? I'll just f- grow up. He didn't even want to spend time with me anyway. I'll get away from me, Cole. Just get away from me and my life. <laughs> Look, oh, whatever, Stella. You knew I'd screw up, and I screwed up. Are you happy now? Cole, I never want to see you near Eddie ever again. Do you hear me? My name's Martin Richardson, and I play the part of Cole. And my name is Deirdre Mullins, and I play Stella. So what's it like being involved in a production that is moving on bicycles? Because that must be something pretty new, right? Yeah, it's uh, the first time I've ever done anything... Uh, of this sort, like a promenade performance where you move from location to location uh, and to have audience on the bikes makes it even more interesting um, it's it's a tough tough role but I think when the whole show comes together and it all works as one it's going to be really exciting so it's really nice to be involved in something really unique and, and new. Have there been any particular challenges in, in 
realizing your character in this play? Um, I actually, I think one of the the most challenging things is going to be um, acoustics, and you know, fifty people on bicycles is going to be quite spread out, and and uh, you know, and obviously we're outdoors, and there's all sorts of um, airplanes and people passing by and stuff. So, um, I think that will be the the biggest challenge, and rain. <laughs> uh, so, so yeah, I think that will be the 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 most uh, variable aspect. <laughs> Well, it's really coming down. But uh, t- tell me a little bit about the journeys that your characters make during the uh, during the play. Um, well, my character starts off um, pretty excited. He's just got himself a new job, and w- the audience kind of invited to follow his story throughout the play, um, where he tries to 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 build a relationship with his son, and he thinks he's doing the right thing by sort of coming down to the skate park where his son usually hangs out and showing off his new bike um, and showing off the fact that he's just got his first job that he's ever had uh, which he thinks is going to be sort of a new start and things are going to get better from there on but within the first sort of 10 minutes things go downhill pretty pretty quickly I mean it's called Bicycle Thieves and that's generally what what happens in the show he gets his bike stolen and from there you know he the consequences are pretty bad he, he he doesn't really rebuild his relationship with his son and um you know sort of is humiliated so to speak towards the end for his decisions that he makes um after after that yeah and a fair bit of anger coming there from your, oh yeah your character yeah, yeah. fiery uh, fiery she's a fiery fiery lady um i'll have to do a bit of vocal warm-up for that <laughs> um yeah and especially I'll, well, I'll be shouting across parks so so we've already it's been really fun um during rehearsal you know um down down in the parks people have kind of come to join in the, the domestics that, that they think is going on you know we keep having to explain that um it's just a theater show not wanting to spoil the ending but the the film the bicycle thieves does have a notoriously kind of pessimistic outlook it does, it's not got the Hollywood ending does the play take a cue from that or have you sweetened it up a bit <laughs> oh I don't know can we can we spoil the ending <laughs> oh, maybe not no I, I don't think we should spoil the ending um, it it does re- it there is quite a high energy towards the end and it's something that I mean if you go to the theater you know you go to the West End it's something sort of experience you're not going to get from that um, the, the audience are invited to join in the last scene, which, you know, makes it all that more exciting. But I won't tell you exactly what happens. Vicky Graham is the show's producer. And I spoke to her and I began by asking her to explain how the performances would actually work. We are doing four performances over next weekend on Saturday 31st and Sunday 1st of August. And we've got uh, space to take 50 cyclists at each of the four performances. So with a bit of luck, we're going to have 200 cyclists um, going through the streets and parks and along the canal here in Kensington. So we're here at the um, BMX park, just on the uh, side of the canal in Westbourne Park by the, what's the flyover there? That's the Westway, isn't it? Meanwhile Gardens. Um, And so this is the central part of the play in terms of the production in physical terms, but also in terms of the, the story. Absolutely. Um, this is where the show will begin um, with uh, an opening scene and some BMX choreography by Paddy Waters um, and some of these guys performing in it. Um, and then it takes off and, and we'll go, yeah, like I said, along the canal and to various parks along the way. Yeah, this is where the work itself as well as the story have been developed from. Um, there's a lot of uh, young BMX enthusiasts who hang out here all the time, including Harry. Um, and they've really inspired us to 
to flesh this story out and to make it really contemporary and set it right here. So in terms of the cast, how big is the cast? So we've got two actors, Martin Richardson, Deirdre Mullins, um, and then we have um, Harry, Harry Naylor here, playing the role of Eddie. And then we have four BMXs um, and supporting artist and Sally. Um, and I believe that is it. Harry, what did you think when people came to you and said, we'd like you to act in a play on your bike? Uh, I don't know, I wasn't like, really up for it, but no, it's, it's actually quite fun. Like, I would do it again, probably. And so how much of it is about acting and how much of it is it about riding your bike? Well, the acting's, like, off of the skate park and then, like, everything else is just, like, normal riding my bike in the skate park. And so are you going to be doing any tricks? Are you worried about how those are going to come off? Or no. are you totally confident? No, it's just in case I drop and, like, it'd be funny. Like, if you muck it up in the scene, it'd just be, like, funny if you dropped or something. But I'm not really worried about it. I think I do. All right. What tricks have you got lined up for the show? I don't know. Any, really. I'll pull out some ones that no one's really seen before. So I'll just hope for that to go well. All right. So there's a bit of improv in there as well, Vicky. First I've heard of it. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, absolutely. Paddy's choreographed um, some scenes, but I know that uh, on the day there's going to be some, uh, can, can I dare call it showing off by, by the guys? They've got some stuff of their own, which I know they'll be delighted to elaborate with. It's going to be great. And so after these four performances, plans to take it elsewhere? Very definitely, yes. Um, we really, really hope to take it over to Hackney. We've got um, a writer involved who's really excited to help us develop the script a little bit further. And we'd like to do it over in East London. And then the hope is, my, my hope, my dream for it is that it might take to the road and go on a UK tour next summer. Um, so actually everybody involved would cycle around the UK performing in different cities and festivals and attached to various theatres. Watch the space. So some long-distance BMX riding. <laughs> That's How, right. What do you think about that, cycling hundreds of miles on your BMX? Uh, I probably won't cycle, like, all the way. I'll probably have to get some way of transport there, but it's going to be fun if we do it. That was Vicky Graham and BMXer Harry. If you want to go and see performances of The Bicycle Thieves, it's on next weekend and tickets cost just £4. Performances are on Saturday and Sunday at 2.30pm and 5pm and start at the Meanwhile Gardens near Westbourne Park Tube on the banks of the Regent's Canal. That's it for this week, but here's a little taste of next week's show, which is the second to last show in the current season. It's quite rewarding, really that people now appreciate hand-built frames as opposed to the sort of thing you get from sort of a, uh, a manufacturer. Frame building at the moment is incredibly um, fascinating. The way people want their, their bikes made in the old style, with new materials. That was the voice of Ron Cooper, one of the all-time great British bicycle frame builders, who's still building bicycles at the grand old age of 79. Tune in to hear more from Ron in a special show that's also a tie-in with a feature-length article in the new edition of Rouleau magazine. That's it from me. Goodbye.
See y'all. 